0: You are listening to the first in a series of messages entitled, The Advent, given at Hocas and Baptist Church in December of 2008. Today's sermon is from Matthew 1, and now here is Pastor John Boulay. The Christmas story has uh, two visitations, or the nativity scene at least has two visitations, the shepherds and the wise men. Are the two crowds that we see that seem to show up or at or around the birth story? Usually, if you set have set up your nativity scene at home, uh, like I guess we're supposed to, there's this veritable traffic jam outside of the manger. Have you ever noticed? If if you're like me, you're always trying to figure out how do well. First of all, who's closest? You know, you're like, is is that a shepherd or a wise man? But what was really happening is we have the sense from Luke 2, the account of the shepherds is in Luke chapter 2, that the shepherds uh, were visited by an angel the night of the birth and they were encouraged to go into the town and to worship the Christ child. And so there is a sense that uh, quite possibly that very evening the shepherds did show up at this manger scene. In fact, that's the sign given to them of recognition. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes in, in, uh, in a manger. The wise men, which we normally put in this Christmas nativity scene, we are almost certainly sure were not there on Christmas. Um, we have every reason to believe that um, it was some other time that Jesus may have been as old as two years old. It was his early years of life. But that alleviates your quandary about the chaffer jam. Uh, there was no like uh, wise man gang and the shepherds gang at the manger scene at the same time. But there was, in fact, two visitations. And while we're not going to focus on shepherds and wise men this morning, I do think uh, it, it is worth focusing on why they came. In the case of the shepherds, they are minding their own business, shepherding their flocks, and this angel shows up, and the angel says something to the effect of this very day, an angel or a savior is born in the town of David. He is Christ the Lord, And then anecdotally, the angel kind of says, By the way, if you're going to go worship this Savior who is Christ the Lord, you'll know Him by the fact that He is this child in a manger. In Matthew 2, where the wise men uh, are accounted for, this is what happens. They arrive in the court of King Herod and they say this. They say, Where is this child who has been born King of the Jews? That's how they enter. And they say, so that we may go and worship him. And so Herod uh, calls in the priests and they say, where would this child be born? And the priests say, he would be born in Bethlehem. And so they say, well, then he's in Bethlehem. And the wise men, they go to Bethlehem and they kneel before this child and they worship him. Did you notice the objective of the visits Did you notice, were they going to visit a baby? The wise men say, where is this child who has been born king of the Jews? The angel approaches the shepherds and says, unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I find that this season is a season of special birth. And as we set up these nativities, as we think about the visitors to the nativity scene, I am, I am hopeful or cautious that we do not see this as a birthday event only. The shepherds or the wise men are not bringing birthday gifts. They're bringing gifts to a king. The shepherds are not going down to see the birth of the child. They, that is the sign of the Savior. The angel says, go worship the Savior, Christ the Lord. By the way, so you don't wander around Bethlehem all night. It's a child. It's going to throw you for a loop, but it's a child in a manger. But you're going to worship the Savior. And sometimes I think our Christmas symbology can get a little bit out of balance. When we start to think and talk and set up our mangers around Christmas time, We begin to talk about the Christ child, and if we're not very careful, sometimes we can talk a whole lot about the child and not an awful lot about the Christ. And so this this month is an opportunity to ensure that we speak of things in balance. Because certainly, it's important that the child is the Christ. And I wonder sometimes, as we speak to the world, as we tell our stories, whether it's passively through our nativity scenes or whether it's actively, how careful we should be in in foot-stomping the importance of the Christmas event if we don't do it in a balanced, holistic way. Because when the world hears the significance as a child, I can only imagine what goes on in their mind. I I have a hard time finding that significance. But when we speak of this child who is the Christ, the Savior, and the Anointed One, that's something that the world may be able to hold on to. The Oxford American Dictionary defines Advent as this, as the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And I like the word Advent when referring to this season because it talks about some kind of anticipation. It talks about an arrival of something. There is this notable person or thing or event that is coming on the scene. And when there's an advent of something, there is a change. At the advent of the printing press, the world changed. At the advent of the personal computer, the world changed. At the advent of a notable person, place, or thing, the world is forever changed. And the gospel writers, when they write the gospels, they are intimately concerned about the advent of Christ. And get this they don't seem to be that concerned about the birth of Christ. All four gospel writers talk about the advent of Jesus, but they talk about it in their own way. Did you know, by the way, that the birth of Jesus is mentioned in only two of the four gospels? And in one of those two, it's in passing. It's a side note. Only one of our four gospels even details the account of the birth event. Yet, it is almost a singular Reality for us as Christians today in our culture, when we get to Christmas, it that becomes the singular moment. Although the gospel writers write about many other things, and so this month we're going to have a different kind of Advent. Instead of the Advent wreath up here, I've given each of you your own Advent wreath. It's the Bible. And the way we're going to use the Advent this month is that the first chapter of each gospel will guide us through Advent. We're going to ask ourselves a question. These gospel writers, as they're introducing to us this this arrival of this great Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to examine why do they start the way they start? Why do they choose their beginning point the way they choose it? Instead of a wreath up here, what we've decided to do is to place a sign for each book that we're doing. So this morning as we do Matthew, we've placed a sign for Matthew chapter 1, that this would be a reminder to us that the advent of Christ is not the same as the incarnation of Jesus. The, the incarnation of Jesus is just part of the advent of Christ. So if you will, pray with me. We'll begin with Matthew chapter 1. Lord, let us always remember that even at new birth, you will remain the ancient of days. And even at the opening of the New Testament, Lord, you you remain the author of the Old Testament. And so that, Lord, that as we think about the final days, at your second coming, we might remember that that has long been written by you in the book of life. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Our focus will be the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to read it, partly because I've practiced it a lot. No, I'm going to read it because I think it ought to be read. And because I know if you're like me, you get at a lineage and you go, yada, 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 the end. And so there's probably some value in us realizing that the Matthew has given us this in the Holy Scriptures and it ought to be heard and read. So I'll begin in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and I'll read till through 17. <clears throat> so wish me luck. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nishon, Nishon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shethiel, Shetiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is also called Christ. Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ. Now you're Matthew. I don't know if he knew he had the chance to write the first words of the entire New Testament, but he certainly is one of the earlier gospel writers. And if you were an earlier gospel writer and you were going to write the opening words to the entire New Testament, why would you mess it up with a lineage? I mean, come on! If there's a place, if the birth of Christ is that significant, isn't this the place to put it? Shouldn't this be the place where it came a time when Caesar Augustus said there would be a census? Isn't this it? But we see this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then 16 verses of lineage. Now I get fired up by lineages, you know that. Lineages are pe- things that people who study the Bible love and people who read the Bible generally don't love. And so I told my wife over dinner all the things I was going to tell you. She fell asleep at the table and her head hit the bowl of soup. I'm kidding. But I, I, she gave me enough of an impression with her glazed look and her frown. She started playing with her hair that I fear that if I tell you what I want to tell you about lineages, I may put some of you down. So I won't. I won't tell you what I want to tell you. I'll tell you what I feel I ought to tell you and have to tell you. And what I'd like to talk about might not be what's so fascinating about this lineage, but maybe there can be some appreciation as to why the Hebrew people were into lineages in the first place. Because I think if we can appreciate that, we can move on one day to finally appreciate, oh, Shethiel was the father of so-and-so. That's neat. But we can't get there if we don't understand why the Hebrew people were into lineages. So let's talk a little bit about that. And I think part of it, I can't ignore the fact that there are the classic ancient Near East cultural amenities to lineages. Stories are told through lineages. Histories are, 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 are written down via lineages. So lineages are simply a cultural part of that kind of people. That certainly is the case. It's also a part of of legal contract, your your name. You know, we have a first and a last name. They kind of had a name of a town by a name. You were identified by your family from a town. So Jesus of Nazareth is he is he the one from Nazareth of that family? So they were functionally useful in, in practical life. But there's something that Jews or Hebrew people had in their lineages that other people groups do not have, not nearly so. Uh, if they do have it, not nearly so to the degree. And that's that for the Hebrew people, the lineage was a reminder of God's promises. It wasn't simply a way of telling history. It was a reminder of God's promises because way back, thousands of years ago, about 2000 BC, the Hebrews believed that God entered into the life of a man named Abram and said, if you come with me, I will bless you. They believe that happened. I will bless you as a people. This is what it says in Genesis 12. It says, Genesis 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will, bless your, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now if 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 that blessing comes through Abram, then all of a sudden it is fairly important to be related to Abram, who later becomes Abraham. All of a sudden, I need to be able to draw my lineage to Abraham if I'm part of that blessing. And in fact, what happens is Abraham receives a son from the Lord. He names him Isaac, and the Lord confirms his promise to Isaac. You are a child of my promise. So right there, we have two data points saying this line, this genetic bloodline is important. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. God chooses Jacob and says, Jacob, you are the son of my promise, and I now rename you Israel. And your line is important. And from you, the nations will flow. And from them, there's 12 mighty nations, mighty tribes, that come from Israel. So we might see why lineages are important. Is we've got to be able to trace ourselves back to Abraham. But there's something else. In addition to the simple, the promise given to Abraham, what began to surface over time in Jewish life are the contractual relationships between God and man. The Bible calls them covenants. But God approaches the people, the tribes... And he begins to say, if you do this, if you worship me, if you follow my commands, I will bless you. They enter into covenant with one another. You're probably most familiar with the the Ten Commandments. But they enter into this covenant. And as time goes on, God starts to do something with these covenants. He starts to add covenants that are not separate unto, but kind of superimposed on the original covenant. So there's this covenant with Moses for all the people. But then, he takes the tribe of Levi, and he sets it aside and says, now this people, he doesn't make a separate covenant complete, but he says, this people are are in a different group. They're going to be my priestly tribe. And there's rules. In fact, to be a priest... In the Jewish nation, you had to be able to trace your lineage back to Aaron. That's 1,500 years of lineage from the time of Jesus to Aaron. In fact, when they finally come out of exile, the the Hebrews come back to their land out of exile, and they're figuring out who's who. Ezra calls for a census of the priests to see if they can trace their lineage back. And he actually, there's record of him saying to a few families, you can no longer be priests because you cannot verify your lineage. And they cut them out of the priestly tribe because it is so important to be in that promise or that relationship with God. But the one that's probably most significant is the fact that Jesus calls this man from the tribe of Judah named David and says, I have shown my favor on you and I bring you this promise. This is what he says in Second Samuel. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish, establish a house for you. He's speaking to David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with the floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Can you start to see why lineages matter to the Hebrew people? They must show that they're children of the promise of Abraham, and now they start to become very concerned about who is in the tribe of Judah in the line of David, because there is a promise of a king. Now, the Hebrew people were not obedient. They were very disobedient. They turned their affections to other things. The Bible calls that all idolatry, and as they did, the Lord rebuked the people. He punished the people, and as he had promised them in their covenant, he put them into exile. But during all this time, there's, a, there's another voice that starts to surface among the people about this promise. And these people were called prophets. And the prophets start to give additional information about this kingship. So we know that they're children of Abraham and we know that the kingship is through the line of David, but the kingship is on hard times. It's being persecuted and ultimately, at the, towards the 6th century B.C., it gets obliterated and sent into exile. And the people are wondering, where is this God who promised us a kingdom and a king? And so the Lord begins to send them prophets and the prophets try to call them back to righteousness, The prophets try to remind them of the truth of God, but the prophets also do one thing. The prophets remind them that God has not forgotten His word or His promise. Isaiah says this. This is as the kingdom is spiraling downward. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. As the kingdom is actually collapsing... The walls are falling in. Jeremiah writes this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to a, to a David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our Righteousness. And the name there is Yahweh our Righteousness. It isn't like the master or the king. It is Yahweh, our righteousness. That is the name of this king coming. As the people are in exile and they're sitting in Babylon and they're wrestling with why has God done this to us, God raises up yet a third mighty prophet who says this to the people. Ezekiel says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now why would Ezekiel say, I will raise up David 500 years after David has died? He is reminding them that in 2 Samuel, God said to David, I will will place beneath you an enduring kingdom of eternal quality. There will always be a king in the line of David who will reign. And Jeremiah says, and his name is Yahweh of righteousness. That's why lineages matter. That's why as we approach Matthew chapter 1, the prelude to the, the genealogy is this. Matthew says, let me tell you about Jesus, the son of David, the son of of Abraham, Because to a people that are moaning, to those who say, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who moans in lonely exile here, he says, let me tell you about a son of David, a son of Abraham. And it begins. And as he goes through this lineage, you should know a few things about it. It's not exhaustive, for one. So it certainly is not an informational lineage. There's there's people left out. There's a lot of kind of grammatical trickery going on in the sense that Matthew is trying to make a point. His attempt to get 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Jesus is not an easy task. And so when we see it, we have to say, he's trying to do more than tell us People, because Luke actually gives us more people in the lineage than Matthew does. So he's trying to teach us something about Christ. And this is what I think he's, he's doing. He starts with Abraham. Abraham beget Isaac. To say to those reading, the promises of Abraham, God remembers. For you who moan in exile, because they're home, but they're not free. They're in Judah, but the Romans are on top of them. They're in Israel, but their king is not even Jewish. In fact, King Herod, because lineage was so important, King Herod had the the places where the registrars of lineages were, he had them destroyed. Because the Jews kept saying, you are not our king. You are not our king. Our king is from the line of David. Our king is from the line of David. And the histories tell us that King Herod said, burn that building so they can no longer know who is in the line of David. But Matthew starts here, and he says, let me tell you about Abraham. And then he gives us 14 generations, which in is two sevens. And for those of us who know, seven is a special number. This kind of feeling of, in the fullness of time, God faithfully brought his people from Abraham, the promise of a blessing of a great nation to all people, to David to whom he gives the promise of an eternal king. He brings us from Abraham, who says, this man by faith was considered righteous, to David, who he says, this man was a man after my own heart in the fullness of time. And then he does two more sevens. He says, in 14 more generations, he brings them from David to the exile as a remembrance of God was faithful with Abraham, God was faithful with David, And your sin, your faithless sin, brought you to the exile. In the fullness of time, you took the promise I gave you, and you cast yourselves into exile. In fact, when when David finally takes this kingship over, and his reign finally settles, the author of Samuel is very intentional to let us know that the promises of Abraham have been met. The ways he uses language, like, all the land there was peace. All the way to the land promised. They had and they commanded peace. That David owned the land. All of these promises given to Abraham. When we get to David, the Lord says they're satisfied. But all the contractual agreements that come on between Moses and David, by the time we get to the exile, the scriptures are very clear to say man has violated them all. And they go into exile. And then we arrive at last at 14 last generations. So in the fullness of time, we go from Abraham to David. And in the fullness of time, we cast ourselves into exile. And Matthew says, The person about which you are about to read is at the end of another fullness of time. That people spoke of Abraham, that has been resolved. People spoke of David, that has been resolved But there are still the voices of prophets crying out. Where is the root of Jesse? Where is Yahweh of righteousness? Where is the shepherd of David who will shepherd his people? These are outstanding promises awaiting fulfillment. And Matthew says, In the fullness of time, this will pass and you will arrive at a place. And this man's name is Jesus, whose mother is Mary... Whose husband is Joseph, whose father is Jacob, and we have reached the fullness of time. It's a different kind of advent. It seems like a very notable person arrival of a person, place or event. It doesn't surprise me when I look out in the world and I have conversations. I had some just last night at my squadron Christmas party. It's a place for interesting conversations. It does not surprise me one bit that the world thinks of Jesus as a wise teacher. Because all we give them is a birth story. How much more can be we, 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 gleaned by the, the uninformed, not, biblically illiterate world when we talk about a birth story? It's just not it's not interesting enough. It's not profound enough. There's not enough anticipation in it. I would find myself if if I were a pagan, I would find myself going, wouldn't God, if God were going to save the world from his sins, wouldn't God show up and, and wouldn't wouldn't there be more of a of a prelude to the arrival of Christ? doesn't it seem like something that he might spend 2,000 years anticipating and talking about? Just the birth, the birth alone is insufficient to carry the weight of a Messiah. We need the Advent to carry the weight of a Messiah. And so I encourage you this morning and this month that as you speak to those around you, that you speak to them of the full gospel of the Advent of Jesus, that when they want to talk about the birth, you start at the birth and you head in both directions. You say, "I'll tell you about the birth, but I'll tell you why it's significant, why the Jews were embracing it, why Jesus, the infant, is this child of peace, and I'll tell you where this goes because it doesn't. It doesn't begin and end in the manger. It begins at Abraham, or believe it or not, it begins at the curse of Eve, and it ends at the second coming." of Jesus Christ in the final day. And between that are promises and crucifixions and martyrdom and resurrections. And that is the advent of Christ. Amen.